the joy that's ours this morning, that all is with you and with me as well as it is, and permits us to assemble and to gather like this, let me at least begin by saying, as I mentioned at the outset of the Bible study hour, we're so thankful for our membership at Pippin that you're here with us. But in addition to that, for the host of guests and visitors that have come our way today, it's our earnest desire that all of us might be encouraged and blessed and benefited, but more importantly, that the name of God will be magnified and that His Word will be upheld and exalted in all that we do and say today. You may have noted uh, by way of the title of the lesson this morning that we're going to cast a spotlight on your soul and mine. What is it? What does the Bible have to say about it? And may I say that, of course, prior to our conclusion, a number of features and particulars about our souls will be highlighted in such a way that I truly hope that we each can leave with a far better appreciation for and estimation of what you and I really are. In fact, this opening slide, this introductory one, will set before us some beginning considerations. Isn't it interesting how that you and I are so familiar with a number of things that go on regularly in our lives each and every day? Things that are disposable. That is to say, you use it, throw it away. You no longer have need for, or perhaps it's not even reusable at all. Lots of plastics, in fact, may fit into a category where we try to recycle them, but our initial use of it has been completed. There are other things we just throw away as trash or garbage. To say the very least, we can now ask, what about human beings? Now, there are some cultures around the world that look upon the character of human beings in a very different way than you and I do. And as we give thought to considerations along that line... Look at the bottom and lower part of the slide. Our interest is not what men may say. That second song that we led just a moment ago, Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord. Borrowing the wording of Colossians 3.17, what does the Bible have to say about the soul that's you and the soul that's me? I would suggest to you that one of the healthiest things we might do is clarify that of which we speak. That is to say, what do we mean by the word soul, at least as we're going to employ it today? At first thought, you may think, well, what's the point in that discussion? Doesn't everybody know, at least those who are somewhat aware of the Bible, what the soul is? Well, let me just offer this thought. The Bible itself uses the word soul with a, with a latitude of usage. That is to say, in certain contexts, the word soul means slightly different things. And of course, what I'd like to do is at least clarify that consideration first and then launch into a more detailed consideration of the soul that probably was first on your mind anyway. As far as Old and New Testament usage, I would first invite you to note this. That an original Hebrew word that's translated soul so many times in the Old Testament you may take note, almost 800 times. It's a frequently occurring word, but here's the issue. You may immediately notice a number of differing English words sometimes were employed by the translators in the place of that original Hebrew word. And some of the possibilities are words like life, 
many, many times that original Hebrew word is translated in English by the word life. Jeremiah 21, 7 is a perfect example. There are many other places, though, in which it's translated by the word soul. As, for instance, in Genesis 2, verse 7. That one is a familiar one to all of us. And it reads, And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. But may I say, there's at least two more that perhaps would be worthy of mention. The word head in Isaiah 58, 5, that too, that original Hebrew word that in other places is translated soul. Finally, the word person in Ezekiel 16, 5. That just gives you a sampling of the latitude of ways in which on occasion that original word can find translation. But perhaps it's the New Testament that leaps to our immediate interest. In those 27 books of the New Testament, the original language of which was Greek, you'll notice that the word life is frequently presented again as a word that carries the Greek significance. John 10 verse 11. Another one is the word soul though, and that's the one that occupies our attention so much this morning. I might pause at this point and ask, so if someone were to say, what is your soul? At least in the way we're going to discuss it today, we're going to try to do it justice by letting God do most of the talking. What I think about it is really rather irrelevant. And what you think about it, quite frankly, isn't that valuable either. But what does the Bible have to say that is the soul of man? And we aren't just talking about some general matters but let's be specific enough to close that slide like this. The word soul then, sometimes in the Bible, refers to a person. You could probably think of some examples. Eight souls were saved by water. No one is family. 1 Peter chapter 3. But I might say in that connection, you might notice that there the word soul is just being used as a reference to basically a human being. But look at another one. Sometimes the word soul amongst those words I've just mentioned refers to life. The blessing that is the reality of life upon this earth. Examples might well be Matthew 2 verse 20. There it's used in connection to a choice Joseph made in light of the baby Jesus and Mary. But certainly at the bottom of that slide is going to occupy our primary attention. Because that word soul is sometimes used to refer to the spirit of a person. May I say, not just the life, not just the existence of the human being, but that which is literally the spirit of the, of the individual. In the context you see at the bottom, you and I would have to allow the context of a given passage to offer us the understanding of how the word soul is being used. But when employed that way, look at what some of these truths are the Bible quickly tells us. With regard to the spirit of man, the spirit of you, the spirit of me, we're going to use soul as it refers to that. First thing we can say is it was formed by God. Zechariah perhaps thunderously presented that truth as clearly as anyone else. In Zechariah 12, verse number 1, 
referring to the God of heaven, who formeth the spirit of man within him. Isn't it so that quite often those of our world who are motivated in many ways by purely knowledge in relation to science, they speak about evolution and they speak about a number of other gradual developments. Might you and I take note, we aren't interested in that, of course. We're only interested in what the Bible teaches and the Spirit, notice, is formed by and given by God. That's a fascinating thought. That means when that babe first begins to develop in the womb of that mother, that we find an appreciation at that moment of conception that God gave a spirit in the development of the characteristic of what that being would be. God formed it. God gave it. Now that alone shouts greatly, does it, about the character of the evil of abortion. And how that you're taking not only this life, but you're taking what spirit God has in fact formed, and you are doing with it what the God of heaven ever intended. Isn't it amazing how often the Bible refers, even before you were born, God told Jeremiah, I ordained thee a prophet, Jeremiah 1 verse 5. Before he was born, God had already made expectation of and utilization toward Jeremiah as a bold and powerful prophet of God. That which is in the womb of a mother is not mere tissue. It is not merely a thing. It's a human being with a soul, a spirit, if you please. But not only that, look at this. In several passages, this concept is utilized to motivate much thinking in Isaiah 42, 5, as well as Isaiah 57, 16. There we find this idea presented in such beautiful ways to ancient Israel in light of what they were to appreciate concerning the value and the worth of the soul of man. Perhaps finally on that slide, isn't it something to observe that the New Testament mentions this as well? It's not only an Old Testament concept. As far as the spirit of man, wasn't it the Hebrew writer who put it like this in Hebrew 12, Hebrews 12 verse 9? That you and I as the children of God are such that God is the one who watches over, if you please, and who disciplines us because He is the Father of spirits. Now, that suggests that as God disciplines His children, He does so out of His love for them, and again, as the Father of spirits. May you and I appreciate the chastisement of God with the effort of motivating us in the direction of what's right, so that we'll not fall by the wayside by way of mistake. But so far, first point, these spirits, this soul we're discussing was formed by God. As I stand before an assembly like this, and I look at the varying characteristics of our physical bodies, and we all know we have different hair color and facial expressions, and there are many things about each person that's unique. But you know, when it comes to the soul of man, that was formed by God. And it is not easily, of course, visible to our, to our unaided eye. Only through the eye of Scripture. 
It is with that regard what is said to us in passages like Hebrews 4, verse 12. There, speaking about the Word of God. The Word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow and the discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. It is the Word of God that's able to delineate for us and describe both spirit and soul and help us understand the great worth and the value and the character of each one. Now, modern medicine can't do that. As skillful, as knowledgeable as modern medicine is, doctors have nothing they can prescribe concerning your soul. It's only the great physician that can do that. And today, as we open the blessed pages of the Word of God, what else might we learn about this? Point number two. This soul that we're describing, the Bible lists rather highly in distinction to what's physical. As I mentioned a moment ago, we're aware of our physical body. We try to take care of it. We try to provide necessary sustenance for it. We try to provide the necessary matters to ensure safety and freedom from harm and danger. But we're talking about the soul this morning. And so on that slide, why don't we begin like this. There's a pair of passages that help us greatly. Let's start in John 4, 24. Speaking about the great God of heaven, it says, God is a spirit, and they that worship Him must worship Him in truth and in spirit. Notice the first part of that verse. We frequently cast a spotlight on the latter part. And for good reason. All who worship God must do so, both in spirit and in truth. But that verse began by asserting that God is spirit. When we talk about spirit, and we've already learned we're going to use soul as it describes the spirit of man. That spirit is something that God is in the sense that's the character He's got. He's spirit. But Jesus said this in Luke 24, 39, A spirit hath not flesh and bones. That is to say, that spirit is not the blood. It is not the bones. It's not the body. It's something different. It has a different essence, a different character, a different nature. Is it any wonder then in regard to that particular spirit? That thought is echoed later in Hebrews 2.14. That's what was so special about the Lord's incarnation. He, of course, existed in spirit form, but He left the grandeur of heaven and took upon Himself the form of flesh. And He did that to set before Himself the opportunity for temptation, but as He overcame them, He can be that source to which we can turn for the necessary guidance that we need to also overcome temptation. That was the whole reasoning of Hebrews 2, 14-18. No wonder in that connection, the final thing on that slide is this. That Spirit that is you and me. That spirit that you and I have, that is us. For a while it inhabits a body. It dwells in this fleshly tabernacle. And that's remarkable. I mentioned before about the existence of the body. But notice, that which really is you and me is a spirit that inhabits that body. That spirit that dwells within that body. Let's turn to 2 Corinthians 5 for just a moment. And let Paul speak about this. 
2 Corinthians 5, I'll begin reading in verse number 1. In fact, to place it in the best of its context, let me start in verse 16 of chapter 4 because it seamlessly moves into chapter 5. It says, For which cause we faint not, but though our outward man perish, note the outward man, yet the inward man is renewed day by day. With regard to you and I, there is an outward man, but it perishes. We all know what it's like to get older. It begins to wear away. It begins to decay. It begins to have the inability to do what it once could. But did you note the contrast? Verse 16 says there's an inward man. There's an inward part to you and to me. We've learned to call that or reference it as the soul, but it goes on to say... For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory, while we look not on the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. For we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle, there we have it, this tabernacle, this tent, were dissolved, we have a building of God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. That spirit, again, that is you and I, it dwells in a tent, a temporary place of dwelling. We all know a tent isn't intended to be permanent. You go camping, you stay there for a day or a, perhaps a week or so, but you come back home eventually. You go back to a more solidified place of dwelling. Paul says, for a while... This earthly tent is that in which this spirit dwells. But he goes on, goes on to say in verse 2, For in this we groan, desiring earnestly to be clothed upon with our house which is from heaven. Did you notice? In contrast to the tent in which the spirit now dwells, Paul said, we look for the house wherein one day it can dwell far more solidly and far more permanently. On that slide, you may then notice we've learned a second point. Let's try a third one. What else should be noted about this soul of man? Paul has already hinted at it here. In fact, other places will state it very directly. The nature of its permanence. May I use the word eternal? As you start that slide, we learn rather quickly that death is not the end. As often as you and I visit the funeral home for a friend, for a loved one, for a neighbor, for a family member, for a fellow brother or sister in Christ even, as often as we do that and perhaps even journey to the cemetery, you and I know what we observe there is the body of that person. The Spirit's not there. We see the body of the person. Let's go ahead and observe something in James 2.26. As the inspired writer pointed out the nature of the very matter we're discussing, he said, As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. Now James was discussing the necessity of faith together with works, but as a part of it, he said, The body without the spirit. The spirit doesn't die. 
Remember, we learn God is spirit and God won't die. There will never come a time that God will cease to be. And in that same way, you and I as spirit, we won't die either. It's just that for a while it tabernacles in this fleshly body, but there will come a time it will leave that body. When that happens, we say, we say the body is dead. That's easy for us to understand based on the Bible, but isn't it fascinating how modern medicine and the appreciations of men offer so many existential theories? The Bible puts it simply the way we just did. The body without the spirit is dead. He doesn't say the spirit's dead. That spirit is as alive and well as ever somewhere. It just isn't here on earth. In fact, isn't it interesting that several passages fill us in on details concerning this? As we build up to them, let's start in Matthew 25, 46. The closing verse to that chapter, our master had just been asked some vital questions. You may remember that. As they came to him and they said, Jesus had just pointed out to them, I'm telling you, this temple you now see is going to be destroyed. Not one stone will be left on another. They asked the Lord, Tell us when shall these things be? And what shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world? Matthew 24, 3. Notice, they were intrigued by the questions, and thus they asked Jesus, we want to know the details. What are you talking about? When are these stones you just talked about going to be torn asunder? When will this temple be destroyed? But then they ask another question. What about the end of time? You're coming. And Jesus proceeded to answer those questions in the order they asked them. He devoted Matthew 24, beginning in verse 4, all the way to that same chapter, verse number 35, in the answer to the first question. And then he transitioned over to the answer to the second one and used the remainder of that chapter and all of the next one to chapter 25, verse 46. It is that verse 46 that is the verse I ask you to consider with me. And in that passage, Jesus had just spoken about a very well-known thing to you and me. He had described the judgment. And as He did so, He says, These shall go away into everlasting punishment. These were the ones on His left. The ones that were the goats. These will go away into everlasting punishment. But then, the righteous into life eternal. The ones on the right. The sheep. They're going into life eternal, the goats to everlasting punishment. You might take note, the grave wasn't the end for either one of them. The same word in Greek that's translated eternal in that same verse is translated everlasting. It's, it's the same word. And it highlights the unending existence that shall be you and me. The soul is eternal. The spirit that is us. Let's develop it like this. That isn't the only place by any regard that the Bible presents that truth. I think Daniel said it rather poignantly in the closing chapter to that rather remarkable book. Look at verse 2 of Daniel 12 with me. Daniel chapter 12, verse number 2. 
In that closing statement, Daniel said, Many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Now, Daniel made statement like that long before Jesus, of course, came and dwelt upon the earth. And there was even that element of knowledge in that far ancient day to those that were appreciative of God's presentation. And today, you and I have the wonderful Bible, the holy volume that details for us these truths in fantastic measure. For that reason, look on this slide. May we refer to the lips of the Jesus Himself when we read from John 5, verses 28 and 29. Jesus often in His discussions with those of His day while He walked upon the earth, He would not only contrast the present view of many to the actual truth which was the matter from God, but He would often house it in language that was so very memorable. Jesus said, Marvel not at this. For the hour is coming when all that are in the grave shall hear His voice and shall come forth. They that have done good unto everlasting life and they that have done evil unto everlasting damnation. And so even the Lord spoke about the reality of resurrection in which that body that was buried or that body that had perhaps long since decomposed there's going to be a resurrection. It's going to come forth. That spirit you see that left that body at one former time, it's been dwelling in a Hadean realm since then. And Jesus told us about that in Luke 16, a rich man and Lazarus. Lazarus found himself in a place of comfort, but the rich man found himself in a place of torment. Now, they hadn't arrived at the judgment yet. This was that realm in which they were awaiting the second coming of the Master. But you'll notice that here we're told that the Hadean realm will empty at one point. All those souls that are currently there will flood out of it. And Revelation 1 verses 18 and following tell us when it's emptied, it'll be cast into Gehenna hell. There'll be no more need for it. But all of the character of that resurrection leads us to close that description. And it points out to us this spirit then that you and me how valuable, because it's never going to cease to be. Once God gives that Spirit at the time of conception, that Spirit will never cease to be. It's going to live somewhere for all eternity. For that reason, may we cast a spotlight on its value, its worth, its preciousness. And let's begin the development like this. I chose to use that adjective because it will never die. It will never cease to be. It is of inestimable value. You can't place a price tag on it. Isn't that what Jesus said? In Mark 8, verses 36 and 37, speaking, Jesus affirmed, What shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Now that was the Master's teaching. The entire world doesn't come close to the value of your soul or mine. That soul, again, because it will never cease to be, it's going to be in eternity somewhere. 
and the way in which you and I live every day will determine where it is. No wonder for that reason. So many verses of Scripture challenge us and point us into great questions. Speaking of that text in Mark 8, verses 36 and 37, the one I quoted a moment ago, there are many other ways in which that can easily be seen. Perhaps it's fascinating to observe some of Peter's comments. In 2 Peter 3, verses 10 and 11, The day of the Lord shall come as a thief in the night. In which all, and you'll notice as Peter made that statement, he was just discussing about the contrast to the way in which in Noah's day, God chose to destroy the surface of earth by water. But now he says, The day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. And as he makes that point, he quickly says, This earth and the heavens even will be dissolved with a great noise and with a great heat. The next verse points out the application to you and me. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in all holy conversation and godliness? How are you and I living every day? Am I living in such a way to safeguard my soul? Or am I living in such a way to where I'm treading on dangerously thin ice and maybe even choosing to do that which is not consistent with the law of God? Because if so, I'll be found lacking in warning on the day of judgment if I don't receive forgiveness of those things. How are you and I living? Is your language characteristic of what pleases God? What about the things you think about? Are they consistent with things that would be pleasing? Thoughts from the perspective of godliness? What about the places you visit every day or the way you interact with others? Is that characteristic of a Christian? If it's not, you and I aren't doing a very good job safeguarding our soul. About the middle of that slide, you'll note this development, or at least this, this application. In Isaiah 53, verses 1 to 6, your soul was so valuable that the God of heaven made this determination, this choice, this initiative, and you knew this was going to come at some part in the lesson. When Jesus hanged on the cross, He did so, so that you and I, that soul could have sins forgiven, and you and I could go to heaven. And He did that for every one of us. God hath laid on Him the iniquity of us all. Isaiah 53, verses 5 and 6. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon Him, and by His stripes we are healed. Verse 5 of that chapter reads it. No wonder in that connection... Your soul was so worthwhile and so valuable that Jesus was willing to die, to be scourged, to be crucified, to endure the blasphemous reviling and railing that He did because He wanted your soul to be saved and mine. And He wanted us to go to heaven with Him. But He does leave the choice to us. Let's close that slide then like this. Isn't this lesson today the reason why the church does so many of the things that it does? Because of the value of the human soul. 
why do we send missionaries to many countries around the world? And we do that here at Pippin. Why do we seek to teach and evangelize? Because we know the value of a soul. And if that person doesn't obey the gospel, that person is lost. And they'll have to give an account before God at judgment. And it shall not go very well. We noticed earlier in Matthew 25 about those again who were the goats and how that everlasting punishment was their lot. Remember the rich man and what he endured even in the Hadean realm? The torment, and he just wanted his tongue to be cooled by some drops of water. It's a place of anguish. And you can imagine if the Hadean realm was that way for them, what about Gehenna hell? Jesus put it like this in Matthew 25, 41. A place prepared for the devil and his angels. I don't want to go there. And when I say I don't want to go there, I mean my spirit. My body can't go there. 1 Corinthians 15, 51 and following tells us that place requires a body that's incorruptible. A body that cannot decay. May I say that we shall be given a body suited for eternity, but that body, if we're unfaithful to God, shall experience all of the anguish and all of the pain and torment and excruciation that goes with being separated from God. On the other hand, we shall have a body, if we're faithful to God, suitable for the pleasures, the bliss, and the joy of eternity in heaven. The time of invitation has come. As we close this slide today, and as we prepare to conclude our lesson, how valuable is your soul? We know it's worth more than all the earth. The question is, are you treating it that way? I suppose all of us have some things of great value at our houses. I mean physical things. Maybe something bequeathed to you from generations long gone by, a precious piece of jewelry or a piece of furniture, something that means a great deal because your great-great-grandfather had it, or something that was very dear to your parents, or something that has become very dear to you because of what it means. But may I offer you have nothing to compare in value to your soul. It far and away stands most valuable. How are you treating it? How am I treating mine? Are you treating it wisely, treating it as the fantastic possession and one that you wish to be right with God. Because if not, how sorrowful it shall be when you have to give account and find things do not go well. Today, as this moment of encouragement is offered, may I say, if there's anyone in the audience and you are not right with God today, it could well be that you have reached an age of knowing wrong from right, but you have never had your sins forgiven. I can't do that. Our elders can't do that. No human being can do that because your sins are not against me. Sins are against God, Acts 5 verse 4. Only He can forgive and He has testified that through the blood of His Son He'll do it. You need to avail yourself of forgiveness available through His blood and no wonder Ananias told Paul, Why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins. Calling on the name of the Lord, Acts twenty-two sixteen. Today, if we could help you do that, we'd be honored. If you have been a Christian, though at some former time, faithful, but as of today, you're not. You've lived in a way that's brought shame and disgrace on the name of Christ, 
on the name of the church, on the character of God's kingdom, you need to make that right. You don't need to go on living this way. To make it right, you need to repent of those things and confess them. And as we pray on your behalf to God, He's promised to forgive you. That's what the sorcerer did in Acts 8, verses 26 and rather verse 20, 21 and following. Today, if we could be of help in either of these ways, won't you let us know how we can help and do so at once? All together we stand and sing.